From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. All right, let's get into this. I'm gonna give you a quick snapshot. If you were missing last week, we started this series called Seven, and it is from Revelations one through three, the letter given to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back. You can watch it on our archives, but I'm gonna give you a very quick snapshot. John is the writer of the book of Revelation, and he's on the island of Patmos, and he's been exiled for preaching the word of God and sharing the testimony of Jesus Most scholars believe this is John the Apostle, the disciple of Christ, the beloved disciple of Christ. And legend says, church legend says that he was, his enemies tried to martyr him for his faith and failed. He was miraculously spared. And so they sent him to Patmos. Now Patmos, I have a picture for you here, is on a small Greek island off the Aegean Sea. And I'm just going to be honest, that, that looks pretty good right about now. Somebody can exile me to Patmos. Because I don't like fall. Anybody like fall? Something's wrong with you all. You know what fall reminds me of? Death. Because winter reminds me of death. Fall is things dying. And I'm really convinced that when the scriptures talk about hell, it's a winter place. That's, I'm not convinced. I just don't like the winter. <laughs> Anyways, so John is on this beautiful island in exile, as you saw up there. And he's in the spirit. He's in the manifest presence of God. And he's in worship. And he is the an encounter with Jesus, with the living word of God, the glorified Jesus. And if you go back to Revelation chapter one, as he tries to describe Jesus, he gives us a new picture of who Jesus is. And he's using similes like, like um, as and like in order to describe the things that he's seeing um, as he tries to describe Jesus in his glory and in his radiance. And Jesus, in this encounter, calls John to write a letter, one letter to seven churches. And that is the book of Revelation. Not Revelations, Revelation. And some of you had said to me last week that you were so encouraged. You know, some of you are like, man, I was so encouraged by the message. Usually when we get into Revelation or the book of Revelation, or we hear talks on Revelation, or we study the book of Revelation, we got kind of depressed or scared or fearful. But many of you said that you were encouraged, which was great, because we really need that foundation. This is a book that's full of hope and it's full of assurance that Jesus reigns and is victorious, but it is not without challenge. This is not a love letter with encouragements and accolades. And, and, and you know, often when we picture Jesus, we think Jesus is going to write me a letter. I can't wait to read it. But there, there is encouragement, but there's also warnings and there's challenge and there's rebuke. And Jesus, as John describes him in this letter, has eyes that are like blazing fire and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Like the words that Jesus is saying are on fire. And so there's a lot of challenge and he, there's a pretty, pretty hard things to, to hear from Jesus. He, he often talks about this church I commend, I commend you for doing this and this I condemn. You know, I, I like this, but I have this against you. And some of us don't like to think that Jesus has anything against us. But we read in this letter some things that he, he has to say to these churches and to us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, we're going to be asking ourselves over the next few weeks, is what is Jesus specifically saying to this church? Today we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. What is Jesus saying to Ephesus? And then what is he saying to us? What is he saying to Parkway Church, and are we going to receive and respond? So I want to read you Revelation chapter 2, 
verses one through seven. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me and follow along. Revelation chapter two, one through seven, it says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is important, I think, to note. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Good stuff. And he goes on, verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's maybe not something we would picture coming out of the mouth of Jesus. He continues, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Wait, Jesus hates certain kind of practices? Verse seven, whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's bow our heads and then we'll get a little bit more into this. Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to your word today and I pray that as you've already been doing, that you'd speak to us. The things you want to say to us as individuals about, Lord, this scripture and also the things you wanna say to us as a church, Lord. As much as we are gathered here together, we often think individually and not collectively, but we are a body and you are the head of this body. And so speak to us as a church, Lord, about things maybe we need to change or, or alter, God, rid ourselves of, repent of, so that we can follow after you the way you, you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus uh, first addresses the church in Ephesus um, and Ephesus, the, the city of Ephesus was one of the chief urban centers of the Mediterranean ancient Near East at the time, had a quarter of a million population. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a metropolis, okay? Uh, it was located off the Aegean Sea, which made it a major hub for commerce and uh, in the Mediterranean region. In fact, I got a, we got a picture of some ruins here. It has the most, the most astonishing ruins in the ancient world here, as you can see on that picture. It was beautiful, colonnades, keep that picture up, marble pavement, monumental buildings all along its major streets and public squares, aqueducts feeding uh, the city with water, fountains. Athletic competitions were held in its stadium. Dramas filled its theater. It had a 25,000 um, seat theater. Uh, we can show that next picture, there it is there. Massive. It had a massive, you can show this next picture, a massive temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The city also had a temple to Julius Caesar, as Julius Caesar had claimed divinity. By the end of the first century, it added temples to the entire Flavian dynasty, and that is the, the Roman rulers that ruled during from Julius Caesar onward, including Demetrian, who was the ruler Caesar when during the time that this revelation was was written. So this is not like Ephesus isn't a rural community. Like this is a big place. And the church in Ephesus was well known. The church in Ephesus um, was considered by, by many early Christian writers to be a great example of faith and life and witness. And it was the model church by the end of the second century 
or the early, early second century. So when we think today of churches that maybe we look to and maybe you have some that you think of, you're like, oh, this, you know, this mega church in you know, wherever, this province or this nation or down here or over there, that's what they would think of when they think of Ephesus, the Ephesian church. It was the mother church to the other six churches in Revelation. Now, one of the things you don't see if you were to go to Ephesus today or the region and the neighboring towns is you would not see a large active church. In modern day Turkey, Turkey today, the population is 99% Muslim. So if there is a church there, it's, it's likely in hiding or very small. And this would have been unthinkable for the readers of this, of Revelation. And it's kind of unthinkable for us today when you think about where there was once a thriving church community and there no longer is one. But this is exactly what Jesus warned the Ephesian church about. He says, if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. So let's take a look. Revelations chapter two, we're gonna look at kind of verse by verse or section by section. It says this, Jesus said to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, when you read the book of Revelation, what you're reading is apocalyptic literature. And this was a common form of literature in the time that used symbols and visions, or symbols and visions, yes, and, and metaphorical language to describe historical events and theological ideas. And that's why we see dragons and beasts and scrolls and the white rider. They are not meant to be taken literal. Now, we don't do this all the time, but we do it with some things. But I read that teachers of, of theology in some seminaries, when they're teaching on the book of Revelation, they have their students read about 100 pages of non-biblical apocalyptic literature so that when they finally read the book of Revelation, they have all the stock images in their brain, right? They just, they picture it automatically. And so they read it more like fantasy than, than literal event, and, and, and we don't do that all the time, but sometimes we do. We say, well, we know the beast and the dragon is not actual dragon, actual beast, but maybe it actually is a physical scroll. But it's metaphorical pictures that we're seeing here. And so the lamp stands and the stars aren't actually stars and lampstands. And Jesus gives us the interpretation in, in, in chapter one. The stars are the angels, Jesus tells us, which could mean divine angelic beings, and I like to lean that way because the rest of Revelation, whenever angel is mentioned, it's referencing divine beings. But some say that it could mean the one who would actually read the letter. Because the word angel, um, when it's translated in the original Greek, um, it means messenger. And so some think that it was like maybe a pastor or someone who would come deliver the letter, they would read that um, to, to the congregation. Now, lampstands is an image that Jesus uses to describe churches. What does a lamp do? It lights up darkness. That's really what churches should be about. We are to be bringers of light. And that light shines in a few different ways. It shines in the physical realm today, you know, in tangible ways that we can see. It shines in the supernatural realm. We have to remember that, that what exists in our life is a supernatural realm where there is a battle that's taking place at all times. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places, authorities that exist in the supernatural realm. Right, And so as we as a church, as we shine our light, we shine that not only in the physical, not only to one another, not only to our community, but we shine in the supernatural. 
And so Jesus refers to the, to the church as lampstands because they shine for him. You were meant to shine. You were meant to shine for God. And light lights up the way. I don't know if you've ever tried to find your way in the dark. It's hard. But even a little bit of light shines it up. I love that metaphor. I love that in pitch black, a little bit of light goes a long way. In fact, you know what? Sometimes when I put my kids to bed, they have a nightlight in the room and they say like, oh, it's not bright enough because like, their eyes haven't adjusted yet. And I'm like, don't worry, your eyes will adjust. And I go in later on when they've fallen asleep and my eyes have adjusted. I'm going to go tuck them in and I walk in the room and I feel that little bit of light is just like blinding light now. I'm like, oh, this is too bright. You were meant to shine for Jesus. And it doesn't matter the amount of light you have, you're meant to shine that light. And Paul, I, I, think, I think about Paul in the, in the, in the, in the New Testament when he was, he was referred to as Saul. He was on the road to Damascus to, to persecute and jail Christians and he encounters Jesus with this bright light and it says that it knocked him down to the ground. And so that when, I, you know, when I'm talking about light, I'm not just talking about something that's nice and, and friendly and Canadian-like. Because light can be blinding to darkness, right? Light can be shocking. If you get one of those, you get those really powerful flashlights, some of you have them, they're like, I don't know what they are, but there's like, there's, there's ooh, something in there and it's blinding. And sometimes that, that at church, as it shines at light, it's gonna be blinding to darkness and darkness is not going to like that. So it's not like people are always gonna flock to light. Some will. Some who need the light will. Some will run from the light. Like Paul, who was knocked down because the light was so bright, he could not handle the light. We were meant to shine. And so the lampstands refers to, to the churches. And, and we'll see in this letter, it follows a very typical pattern. There's this a reminder the, um, in each kind of letter to each church. There's first a reminder of some part of Jesus from chapter one. And then there, it continues with some sort of praise for the church, some sort of encouragement. And then there's a, a warning on what they've been doing badly. So here we have this description of Jesus walking among the churches, walking among the lampstands. You know, each church now has a local leader. I, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to call myself the pastor of this church. Each church has a local leader. But among the churches, the head of the church is Jesus. You know, I really like, and maybe we'll do it. I really like when I look at a church's like website and they'll have like, they'll have like pastor or, or overseer, but then they'll have like head pastor and it will say Jesus Christ. Because that's reality. He's the head of the body. I am not the head of the body. Just an FYI, I may be the leader of the organization of Parkway Church, but I'm not the head of the body. I play a part in the body. I, maybe I'm the pinky. And it's just a really influential pinky. But each local church had, had a, a leader, but at the head of the church is the lead pastor and his name is Jesus. And that speaks a little bit, it uh, speaks a lot. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we have a picture of God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And before sin entered the world, God, God walked with humanity in physical form. So be, when they sin, we have this, this description in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, of God coming to walk in the garden. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking. They heard a physical sound of the Lord as he was walking. Now we could point to, if you know your Old Testament theology a little bit, um, we could say that this is pointing to the angel of the Lord. 
So often you would see in the Old Testament a reference to a different kind of, of angel, a one that, that was referred to as the angel of the Lord and often spoke as if he was the Lord himself, right? It wasn't like Gabriel or Michael or another kind of messenger. It was, it was an angel who spoke as if he was the Lord himself. And this was Yahweh manifested in physical form. Now, I'm just gonna dig a little bit deeper, but really quickly, so I might lose you. Some theologians say that that angel of the Lord that's referenced in the Old Testament Yahweh was the word before the word made his dwelling among us, before the word became flesh. And so those appearances we see in the Old Testament, the physical form of, of Yahweh, of the Lord with his people, is a reference or pointing to the appearance of Jesus. And so when people say, well, I don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, he's there. So God was with them in, the, in Genesis walking in the garden, and here in Revelations, he's walking among the churches, among the lampstands. Any church that proclaims Jesus is Lord, the Lord walks among. They may have a different style than us. They may look a little, little different than us. They may do things a little differently. Method may change. But anyone that claims that Jesus is Lord, he walks among. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have anything to say to the churches, because we're going to see that. But he walks among his churches. Tells us a little bit more too, when Adam and Eve heard God walking in Genesis, um, they hid because they had sinned. And it says that he called out to them. Kind of like a parent to a child. Where are you? You're hiding behind a bush. Like I don't know you're behind a bush. <laughs> Can you see us? So he calls out to them and here in Revelation, we see the same thing again. Uh, Jesus is walking among the churches and he calls out to the Ephesian church. He says, I know your deeds. I know what's going on. I see the good stuff. I see the good works and I see the ugly stuff. And I see the stuff that shouldn't be there. And I have some, some things I wanna commend you for and I have some things that you need to fix. See, here's what we need to know, churches. We can't hide from God. You can't hide from God. He knows it all. He knows your good deeds and he knows your bad deeds. He knows your heart. You don't even know your heart. He knows your heart. He knows your secret sin. He knows the things that you hope nobody else finds out about you. He knows it. You can't hide from him. He knows you better than you know you. And he should because he's the Lord. He's God. And we will one day stand before him on the day of judgment. And we will have to give an account for our lives. Don't think he doesn't know what's going on. Now is the day of grace because when we st stand before him, if we're even able to stand, we're gonna have a sit down and we're gonna talk about everything. So when Jesus first looks at the Ephesians, he's actually delighted. They've worked hard. They've done good work. They've been patient under threat. They've drawn a clear line for Christ. Like this is a pretty solid church. They've lived up to their model name. They've got hard workers. They persevere. They do not tolerate wickedness. They, they've tested the claims of false prophets or apostles, sorry. They've endured hardships. They've not grown weary. This is a church that keeps going when the going gets tough. You know, but behind every church that is growing and thriving, that is, has spiritual vitality, every church like that has a team of people who endure. 
as a team of people who play when they don't want to play and who, who serve when they don't want to serve and teach the kids even when the kids are hard to teach and give when it's hard to give and fight the good fight and run the race when it's hard to run the race all because of the name of Jesus. And when I look at Parkway Church, I see those people. I see people who keep going and keep serving and keep giving and, and persevere and hard workers and people that, that endure and even though they're tired, they don't grow weary. They push through. And just so you know, I praise God for you. I praise God for you. I praise God that you keep fighting the fight of faith and you keep serving the kingdom of God and you keep serving the church and you don't grow weary even though weariness is close by. And this was a church that did that. This was a church that would, that would serve and, and work hard. And they did a lot of hard things. The first thing we read is they did not tolerate wickedness. Uh, I heard one pastor say that when, when God created the church, he didn't create a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. Because here's the thing about churches. Much to your surprise, it's not full of perfect followers. And if, you're, if you think you're one of them, when God created the church, he did not create a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. And some of them still act like it. Because sinners are getting treated at the hospital. You know, we can't walk in a hospital and be like, oh, it's full of sick people in here. Of course it is. It's a hospital. And we can't look at the church and expect that a hospital for sinners won't have sinners. In fact, I would say that that is a mark of a church that might be doing something right when broken, sinful people walk through the doors. And when it rustles the feathers of the self-righteous, it's a good thing. But that doesn't mean when we tolerate sin within the body of Christ. We we sometimes have to have uncomfortable conversations for the health of the church. Hey, we don't do that here. Here, we're not like there. there. There are some things that we need to draw the line on for the health of the church. There are some things that we need to hold those who call Parkway people, apprentices of Jesus, accountable for. And that's really hard in a sinner's hospital. Because a sinner's hospital is full of people who, who have sin. No one is without sin. No one is perfect. Everybody falls short but, that, short, but that sometimes means we have to say, like, hey, that's gossip. That's slander. That's sexual immorality. Or that's greed or that's a bad attitude. We have to have those conversations. They're awkward. They're uncomfortable. Does anybody like that? I don't know. I don't like that. We don't want to have those conversations. We don't want to ruffle feathers because we're nice Canadians, except for online. You notice that? Canadians are really nice face-to-face, -face, but online, we could be nasty. Like, we're not living up to our name sometimes through our posts. But you put people together. It's like, I saw, I saw a video the other day of dog. It was a dog, two dogs. And one ran around the way through, through a little crack in a fence and then there was a fence and then ran on the other side of the fence. So the two dogs were on the other side of the fence and they started going at each other. Like they were walking with each other like they're friends. This is what people do. This is what you and I do. Face to face, we're like, yeah. We get on the other side of the fence. Ugh. Sometimes having those hard conversations are difficult, but they're necessary because we do a disservice to each other 
if we're willing to allow sinfulness continue and unchristlike behavior continue. It's like having the uncomfortable conversation with my kids or, you know, in spouse relationships. Like sometimes those are necessary for the health and growth of church, relationships of people. And sometimes that means we need to not tolerate wickedness in ourselves. Like do, do I see wickedness in myself? Like where do I fall short? Where have I sinned? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to remove? You don't want to know one of the best ways to do that is to confess it to somebody else because that brings it to the light. I had a friend call me a couple years ago to confess some deep sin, like earth-shattering sin, like, like the kind of stuff that I was shocked came out of this person's mouth. I couldn't believe it. But what they wanted to do is they no longer wanted to tolerate it in themselves. So they, they brought it to the surface. They confessed it to somebody. And that meant that I had to say a couple hard things. That meant that I had to be uncomfortable and awkward and push and challenge and rebuke. All for the sake of growth and health. And we do a disservice to one another when we avoid that. So Jesus commends Ephesians Ephesian believers for not tolerating wickedness and further, they would test those who claim to be something they're not. You ever encounter those people? The people who paint a picture of themselves that's not all that accurate? I see my kids doing this all the time with other kids, like on the street. They start talking about how good they are at something. Like, oh, I'm the best at this. I'm like right there as this is happening. I'm the, I'm, I'm, I'm the fastest at this. I do the best. I'm looking at them like, you ain't even ever, ever done that. And then they look up at me like, he knows. And I'm looking at them like, yeah, I know. There were those in this, in this church who would come and claim to be apostles. And apostles were people that were sent out to blaze new trails and plant new churches and reach new people. And there were some who would come like evangelists, right? They'd come from town to town claiming to be apostles, but they would preach a different Jesus and they would preach false teaching. And this church was really good at testing that. And I just want to encourage you today. Can I encourage you to test everything you read and you hear and you come across? Don't just believe it because somebody posted it. Don't just believe it because somebody quoted it. I saw somebody quote something the other day that sounded really nice, but I saw the name of the quote. And I'm like, wait a second. I looked up that name because I remembered that name. That was someone who had written books back in the day for Christ, but now had denounced Christ and said that they were an atheist. Don't just believe everything you see and you read on TV or, or you know, if you're older, maybe TV evangelist, if you're younger and millennial-like, you're probably on social media. We can build really bad theology by doing that. Sometimes we build a theology, I see people share, oh, that sounds nice, it shares. You know, we think like, it sounds like a sheep, must be a sheep. Sounds like a sheep, looks like a sheep, that's from the sheep. But Jesus warned us, he said, he said this, he said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So there are people and posts and teachings that appear like sheep, look like sheep, sound like sheep, but they are not sheep. They are not sheep and they, they do not preach sound doctrine and they wreak havoc on a church. And so Jesus is looking at the Ephesian church and he's saying, I commend you because you've tested these. And you've seen that there are false. Can I encourage you to test the things that you come across, to test what you read against the scripture? You're like, how do I do that? Read the Bible, is it in there? And if you're having a hard time with that, get with sound counsel. Get with people who, who study the word and say, hey, I'm hearing this, does this sound right? Don't just assume that it is because a nice Canadian Christian person posted it or an organization posted it. 
Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. And he says to the church in Ephesus, you've done a good job at testing these people, and I commend you for it. So which tells me this. So they've tested, they don't tolerate wickedness, and they've tested false prophets. That tells me that this church knew the truth. This church knew truth. Because in order to test what is false, you have to know what is true. And so Jesus says to them, I know your deeds, I know what you do, you've persevered, you've endured hardship, and you've not grown weary. I hope, I hope that Jesus would look at Parkway Church and say these kinds of things. I hope that he would look at you and me and people who follow after Jesus and commend us like that. Like Ephesus was really good at drawing clear truth lines. They're really good at not conforming. But then Jesus continues, he says, before your head grows big, Before you start patting yourself on the back, I have more to say. He says, yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, this is like the feedback sandwich, if you notice that. There's another term for it, but I'm not gonna say it because it's not appropriate to say in church. The feedback sandwich is where you start with the good, you put some stuff in the middle that's not so good, and then you end with good. You know what I'm talking about? And that's kind of what Jesus does here. He, He commends them, and then he's like, but this... I have against you, you've forsaken the love you had at first. See, an unwanted side effect of resisting culture and resisting sin is that this church had deserted the love that it had at first. The unwanted side effect of drawing a clear truth line was that they had forsaken love. And that's a delicate balance between truth and love or truth and grace. And we, we see Jesus as one who embodies both, right? The Bible says that he came full of truth. He drew the line clearly, full of grace. And this church was really good at drawing a clear line, but they had forsaken the love that they had at first. Any, any group or person that rightly is concerned for truth may forget that the very heart of the gospel is love. It's possible to come to church, people. Let me say this. It's possible to do church, to serve in church, stand for truth, eat up the word of God, not tolerate wickedness and forget the love of God. And this wasn't a new church. This was an established church. Like this, this was a church who'd been around for a while, but over time they'd abandoned the love that they had at first. And this can be so many of us. You know, maybe we've been Christians for a long time, years, decades. Maybe you've done church your whole life. You've done the church thing. Like you've served in every ministry. You've been a part of every department. You've heard every sermon, every message that could be preached, every way it can be preached. Even as I'm saying this now, you've like, I've heard this before. I know this. You can tithe all your money. You've done it all, been there, done that. But what can happen is when your faith grows old, is your heart can grow cold. Still like the truth, but there's no more love. So Jesus is saying to Ephesus, he says, you guys have served and endured and stood for truth. You've drawn some clear lines, but somewhere along the way, you've deserted the love you had at first. And that I hold against you. And if we're honest, I think that can happen to all of us. It's probably true of many of us, right? Like, is that me? If you're newer to faith, you're new to church, I'm, I'm not talking to you. God bless you for being here. I'm just talking to those who've been around for a bit. 
I'm talking to followers who have followed for a while. I'm talking to Parkway people whose heart isn't in it the way it used to be. Remember when you first gave your life to Jesus? Remember the passion? Remember the drive? And you know, some of us who, who we've served God for a long time, as we look at those people, we're like, oh, look at that baby Christian. They're just so zealous for the Lord. They're a passion. It's like a fire that's just... They'll learn. Right? They'll learn. Oh, we'll just wait a couple years. The fire will die down. You'll be like the rest of us. Is that me? Is that true of me? Are, are, is Parkway like the church in Ephesus? How do we know? I want to give you three ways you know you've abandoned your first love. Number one is you've grown complacent. You're content with the way things are. Life is good. You're satisfied with where you are. You have no desire to do any more or less. You're, you're, you're not striving for any more. You're not pursuing more. You're not learning more. You're not even serving more. You're good. You're coasting. If, if, if it just continued the way it was, with the status quo, right on. Sign me up. Once upon a time, you wanted to serve everywhere, and you were hungry to learn more about Jesus. The word of God for you was riveting. You couldn't put it down. His presence was life-changing. You burn with passion, but now you don't need another group. I've been there. I don't need to serve anymore. I don't need another altar. I've done the altar thing. Jesus has transformed me. I'm fully transformed. I can't be transformed anymore. Baloney. Baloney is my nice platform word. You get it? I don't need to explore my heart. I'm good. That's how you know you're complacent. And if you're complacent, you've abandoned your first love. Number two is you're casual. And you approach Jesus kind of like he's your buddy. Hang out once in a while. You chat here and there. He's your bro. He's your dude. He's your man. You're down with God, but he's kind of like a roommate. You know, when... When you're with people, people don't even know you do the church thing. People don't even know that you're a follower and they come over to your house and they see this part of your life and they say, well, I didn't know you had a roommate. Oh yeah, I didn't tell you. That's my bro, JC. I'm down with the JC. I don't remember the old Carmen Riot song. I remember there was a Carmen song around that. Some, some of you are like, yeah, I remember that. You're casual. I didn't tell you. Yeah, we hang out about once a week here there. Hangs out in my house. He's got his own room. Sometimes I go in there. He's good. I like Jesus. You should meet him too. You're casual. But Jesus isn't your pal. Jesus isn't your pal. He's your king. He's supposed to be Lord of life. He is Lord of life. He sits on the throne of the universe. He is royalty and your life exists for him. Colossians says that we were created by God and for God, not by God for you. That's the biblical directive, by God and for God. You exist for him. You should be his little trinket that he puts on the shelf once in a while because you exist for him, not the other way around. Remember the buddy Jesus, the little bobblehead that people had on their cars and it's like Jesus with two thumbs up? Hey, 
Looks really funny. Might be a nice description of Jesus when he first started ministry and he was, he was very friendly. Jesus is a friendly guy. But he's not your buddy and you're casual. And if you're casual, it's possible you've been abandoned your first love. And if I'm honest, I can be complacent and casual. And there's days where I wake up and maybe I've deserted my first love. And I just want to do the thing that I do each day and go on. And that leads me to number three is I can compromise. You compromise. Compromise is really good in a friendship, meeting in the middle. It's really good in, in a marriage relationship, coming together. Sometimes good in church, right? Sometimes good for us to have the temperature of this place just not too cold and not too hot. So some of you that like it really warm, you're like, it's a, ooh, I, could, I could do another degree. Some of you are like, I could go another cooler. Like, we kind of just meet in the middle, right? We, we, we compromise. Masks right now is a compromise. You may not like it. You may disagree with it. You may think we need to, to triple up. But especially with our culture that's dividing over this thing right now, as we come together and we say, okay, do you know what? Over here, if I'm over here, I'm going to forsake my opinion and my belief about it, Romans 14, and say, for the other, I'm going to give it up, and I'm going to put it on. And over here, we do the same. That's where we come together. It's a compromise. But here's what we need to recognize, is compromise does not do well in lordship. You've deserted your first love when you've compromised with the world and your lordship of Jesus. Your affections are drawn to something else. And culture has a lot of luring things, right? Money, pleasure, sex, power, travel, toys, social status, greener grass. I put that one in there because that's actually my thing. I like physically just want greener grass. Like I want it to look green and I want to beat out every other Joneses. And so I'm meticulous about it. Not crazy, but enough. And it, there's things in this, it's true, I'm not even joking. That's my sin. Um, there's things that we compromise with because the world, this culture has a lot of luring things. And so what we do is we, we trade off what it means to follow Jesus. We trade off lordship for these things of the world. And here's this, when your love for something else supersedes your love for Jesus, that is the definition of idolatry. You wanna know if you're idolatrous. If you commit the sin of idolatry, do you love anything else more than Jesus? Then yes. And every single one of us have been there. Every single one of us fall into that category. If you love your life more than you love Jesus, you've compromised. Now, Ephesus was a trade city. And what they would do is they would create and manufacture idols um, to the, the Greek goddess Artemis, and then they would, they would trade them. Now, we don't do the same. We don't have little idols in our life, but we have a lot of things that we give more attention and time and affection to than we do Christ. And so we compromise. So here's my question. Does any of this describe any of you? Complacent, casual, compromising. You know, Ephesus was a really good church at good works. They gave up, but they had given up their first love. And a church without love is lethal. It's rules, it's legalism, it's right and wrong. And a church that becomes like that is full of judgmental people. A church like without love, it's bland and it's dry and its worship is empty and it's lifeless and it's just a clanging noise. And, and this could happen to all of us. Drifting can happen to all of us, but here's the good news. It is never too late to relight the flame. 
It's never too late. I don't care how young, how old, how long you've been serving. It is never too late. So Jesus says this to Ephesus in verse five. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So the Ephesian church, this group needed to wake up. They needed to wake up and remember how things used to be. They needed to relight the flame and get back on track. They needed to repent. That word, in case you forgot, literally means if you're going this way, you need to turn and go this way. If you've been doing things one way, you need to repent. You need to turn around, stop doing those things, walk away from those things, and walk the way you're supposed to walk. That's what he's saying to them. Repent. You, you're, you've forsaken, you've deserted the love. Walk away from that and start walking towards the love again. You're really good at the truth. You're really good, but I need, I need you to walk towards the love. Repent, or I will come and I'll remove your lampstand. Unless their love changes, then their lampstand would be removed. And if we look at church history, that church isn't there anymore. So Parkway, stir up your passion. Get rid of the idol. Try harder. Go the extra mile. Stop treating Jesus like a buddy and repent. So Jesus says to them that this thing is not a feeling. It's not the gushies, okay? It's an action term. Love in the scriptures had nothing to do with feeling. It had more to do with action. So he says, do the things you did at first. Not feel the way you feel at first. Not feel gushy on the inside, because that's really hard. He says, do the things you did at first. You know, when Jody and I were first dating, um, we would drive, we would live five hours from each other. Like we did a long distance relationship. And we would drive five hours every couple weeks just to see each other. Anytime we had, we would, we would take it. I was a youth pastor at the time. I was young. And at the end of youth, youth would end at like 10 p.m. I would get in my car and I would drive the five hours so I could wake up and have the full day with her. Like I would do those things. You know what could happen now? It's different now. We're, thankfully, we don't live five hours apart. And if we were married and we live five hours apart, that probably would not be good for the marriage relationship. And my kids, you know, it's different now. But if I don't do the kind of things that I did at first, our relationship can grow cold. If I don't put in the effort and the love and the affection and do those kinds of things to show her that I cared because that showed that I cared. I was willing to, I'm exhausted, it's two in the morning, I'm still driving, I haven't arrived there yet, but I did it so I could spend 24 full hours with her. And if I don't do stuff like that now, the relationship can grow cold. And this church did a lot of good things. They were commended for a lot of good things, but there were other things that were missing. And my guess is that they forgot weightier matters. They forgot things like hospitality and practical help and considering the poor and sick and hungry. You know, that was the chief marker of the early church. What separated the church in the book of Acts, like when it first began, when Jesus ascended to heaven and the apostles were taking charge, what separated the church from every other group was how they cared for the poor. It's how they cared for those less fortunate. They cared for the sick. Action love like this was the best expression of love for God. And it's very easy to let that slip and grow complacent. And what we need to do if that's us is we need to do the things we used to do. We need to chip away at the cold heart. So what does that look like? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. It means beginning the practice of becoming an apprentice again. An apprentice of Jesus does three things. Number one, I've shared this before. An apprentice of Jesus, number one, bees with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Number two, become like Jesus. 
And number three is do what he would do if he were you. And I shared this uh, in, a, in a series a couple months back, and we accomplished this with a rule of life. Remember that? Anybody remember the rule of life? It's a set of practices and life rhythms that help us order our lives around these three things. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were you. And so let me give you some quick reminders of what those things are. Practices, those things that we have to do. Number one is silence and solitude. It's scheduling time in your day to be with Jesus. It's giving time in your day, maybe 15 minutes a day. Maybe it's your first 15 minutes when you wake up. You gotta wake up a little bit earlier, just 15 minutes. Maybe it's a midday for you, lunch hour. Maybe it's in the evening, whatever works. You know, maybe you do this. You're very practical. The first five minutes is you just meditate on Christ. You spend time harnessing your mind and your heart and focusing in on God. You meditate. Number two is you read scripture for five minutes. And then you pray for five minutes. And here's, here's some challenge for you. If you can't spend 15 minutes a day with Jesus, can you really call yourself a follower? You can like Jesus. He could be your buddy and he could be your roommate. But if you can't spend 15 minutes, don't tell me you're too busy. Reorder your life. Reorder it. Figure it out. Get rid of some things. And listen, I get that some of you have crazy life schedules. I get some of you have like babies that like are constantly there on you and you can't literally get them off of you because of this stage of life. You figure it out. And there's, and you, I walk with you. You're like, help me. We'll look at your schedule. Let's figure out what we can do. You make time to have silence and solitude. Maybe there's a baby crying baby. In there. Maybe you gotta go in a closet and lock your way because your kids are old and they're obnoxious and loud. Maybe you're even beyond that stage of life and you're retired and you're like, I have five hours, pastor. Well, I got no, you got no excuse. None of us have an excuse. Silence and solitude. Number two is fasting. It's choosing to forego food and drink to beat your body into spiritual submission. It's really hard to fast when, when you get the hunger pains going. But you do it so that you can spend time with God and train your natural body, your flesh, to submit to your spirit. Fasting number two, three is worship. I'm not talking about singing songs, but it's in your day, stopping what you're doing and giving God glory because the heart that worship God, worships Jesus grows closer to Jesus. And number four is serve. Get involved in helping the church. Volunteer in an organization that helps the poor. Lend a hand to your neighbor. Do the walk for NeighborLink's walkathon. Join the tech team. Join the kids team. Cut your neighbor's lawn. Serve. Do something for somebody else and you get nothing in return for. And these kinds of things chip away at the cold heart and help relate the relight the flame. So John ends by writing this, and I know our time's coming, and, but I gotta share this. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in the temple of Ar Artemis, there was a beautiful garden, and there was a tree that was considered a sacred shrine. And it was considered an asylum and a place of refuge. So criminals 
would be safe from, um, from arrest and punishment if they stood within a certain distance of the tree. So Jesus ends this letter by pointing to the Garden of Eden, back to the tree of life, and then back to the end of the revelation, which we read about the end of time, the end of age, saying that God has a paradise and he has a beautiful garden. And in that, there's the tree of life at its heart, but this is not a refuge for unrepentant criminals. You don't run to this tree to save you. This is for those who do repent. This is for those who are victorious. This is for those who hear what the Spirit is saying and respond. That when you follow the will of God, you turn back to your first love, you gain access to this tree, and this tree represents life, eternal life. He's saying, you want eternal life, Ephesians? Church in Ephesus, you want, don't just say a prayer that you prayed 20 years ago and then it did nothing to alter your life. Don't just raise your hand because the pastor said, can you raise your hand and pray with them and think that's good. You want eternal life? Then do the things you did at first. You want access to the tree? You want access to me? Then return to your first love. This was a message for Ephesus, but it's a message for us. Was that you? Have you lost that love that you had at first? Is that Parkway? Corporately, together. Have we, have we forsaken? Have we deserted our love? Here's what I want to do. I want to stand to your feet. I want us to respond to this. I know hey, this was a longer service, that's okay. I think we need that once in a while. But I want us to respond by just getting into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, the team's gonna lead us in a chorus of that song that we sung at the end, You Are My All in All. And I just want, I'm gonna open up the altar. And if you feel like that's you today, you need to physically respond. If you feel like I need to relight that flame, I want you to come forward. I want you to find a spot. You need to mask, find a spot. If you, if you can't, for whatever reason, come, then kneel at your, at your spot. You're, you're, you're acknowledging with the physical. I'm doing something the physical to nurture my inward nature, right? Stepping out of our comfort zone to nurture my inward nature. And by doing so, you're saying, do you know what? I need to repent of the love that I've deserted. So Father, we just commit this moment to you. Just this moment, Lord, as we repent and as we turn back, and you know the hearts and you stirred the hearts. And so we respond to you now to this, to say, forgive us and help us to do those things we did at first. In Jesus' name. Team, would you lead us and come? If that's you, come. Let's, let's respond to the Lord to this. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.